Well, it's good to uh, good to be outdoors today. Uh, as great as our uh, air conditioning is, it's not as good as God's. Uh, let's open our Bibles to John chapter six. One of my favorite memories from childhood is uh, swimming in the summer and having a picnic. We didn't do that a lot, but we did it once in a while. We lived in a little uh, godforsaken place called Warden, Washington, which is in the middle of nowhere, and there's not a swimming pool in sight, and we used to drive to Moses Lake. Oh, that was the promised land. (laughs) Moses Lake is a town, but it's also a lake, and uh, boy, they had a public swimming area, and... uh, my mom would make some fried chicken and whatever else, and uh, we would swim and sit out like this. And, yeah, that's where I learned to swim. And, and then, you know, in, in later years, when we were a little more flush, we'd get Kentucky fried chicken and go to the lake out by Marysville. That was high living then, boy. Tell you what. In John chapter 6, Jesus used a picnic by the lake to teach his disciples a critically important truth, a critically important lesson in faith. And that lesson is one we need to learn as we continue to think about how can we live in peace. We've been thinking about that for the last few weeks. We're going to today in in another week or two, but how can we live in peace? And Jesus used a a, a giant tangible lesson, if you will, to try to get through to his disciples, a couple of them, in fact, and you're familiar with the stories, but let's read uh, one of them here in in, uh, John 6, starting in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one may have a little One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, "Uh, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people to sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples distributed them to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost or wasted. Therefore they gathered them up, and they filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen that sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, To make him king, 
he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got in the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Jesus was, as he always is, teaching on multiple levels at the same time. Certainly there's a, there's a miracle of the, of the multiplying of the loaves and he desired that the people who were listening see him as that prophet who was to come and also to see him ultimately as a son of God. But Jesus was working beyond that to do something even more in his disciples and it had to do with their faith in him. And what we need to understand here today is, is, first of all, this in terms of a faith lesson. God tests his children to cause their spiritual growth. Nothing that's written in the scripture is an accident, including verse 6, which says this. Jesus said to Philip, where, where can we buy bread? He said this to test him. If you ever had any doubt about whether or not God will put you to the test, this ought to answer that question. And the answer is yes, God will put you to the test. God will bring you into challenging circumstances. Now for Philip, this this wasn't, you might say it wasn't personally, physically, or demanding in many ways. Uh, you know, we, we go through many kinds of difficulties, and some of them are very demanding, and, and some of them, like this one, kind of had to do with other people and, and the ministry and so on, and yet it was a test for Philip and his faith. And not only was the, the, the uh, food situation a test, but also Jesus was testing the disciples in regard to the boat we get a little different perspective when we read Mark's uh, account of these events. And in Mark 6.45, it says this, After the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. In other words, not only did he know what he was going to do with the feeding of the 5,000, the fish and the loaves, but he knew what he was going to do with the boat and the disciples. And there's a reason he didn't get in the boat and go with them. He said, you get in the boat and go. I'm going to go up here and pray. And so they got in the boat and went. His disciples, of course, didn't have the advantage that we do. We get to read the whole story, including these little bits where it says he was going to test them. He made them go. They didn't, they didn't know that. They just thought, hey, we're out here doing this thing, and multi, he's multiplying the fish and the loaves. That's his thing, and we're getting in the boat, and that's our thing. They didn't understand this, this overarching story that was going on, this truth that was being taught. He did these things to test them. He made them go. Our tendency when we read these stories is to focus on those miraculous elements, the multiplying. Look what Jesus can do. He can multiply. He can multiply. Yeah. Look what Jesus can do. He can calm the storm. Yeah. Yeah, he can. 
But Jesus wanted the disciples to learn something about faith in the process. And we desperately need to get this truth fixed in our head right up front. I need to believe that God tests his children to cause spiritual growth. I need to get that in my head so that when the tests come, I'm not surprised by it. I had a friend whose, whose son wanted to play football. And uh, he wasn't real small. I think he was kind of in the middle ages. Uh, he wasn't, you know, a high schooler or whatever. And so the son, the, the father bought all the football gear and bought the camp registration so he could go and learn the fundamentals and so on. And after one day of practice, the boy said, I don't want to play football. It's hard. It just makes you want to say, have you ever watched a football game? When did you think that was going to be easy? Christian, don't be surprised when difficulty comes, when tests come. God has told us, not only here but in multiple places, that he uses challenge and he uses difficulty. He uses tests of all sizes and shapes and kinds to help us grow in our faith. Some of the things that come in our life are caused by God, and some of the things that come in our life are allowed by God. Job was physically oppressed by the hand of Satan. That was not God's causing, but we clearly know from the story it was God's allowance. And yet in the process of God either causing or allowing difficulties... God is trying to do good in our life. Now, what Bible verse did you just think of? Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Our problem with Romans 8, 28 is we don't think trials are good. Oh, yes, God's going to do good. And what that means to us is God will solve my problem. God will fix things. God will not allow me to get into difficulty. But what God means when he says God works all, he works all things for good, is it means there's sometimes when he's going to send you into the boat and the storm is going to rise up because he knows what he wants to do after that. And so we need to get it fixed in our head that God will allow trials and difficulty. The people on TV who talk to you as though it's all about healthy, wealthy, and wise, and if you just have enough faith, everything will be beautiful and perfect and wonderful in your life, have not read the Bible completely. We need to understand that trials are part of God's definition of doing good because he uses them to accomplish what can only be accomplished in that way. The second thing that God wants us to learn from this, uh, these stories is this. I must believe that God orchestrates every aspect of my test. I don't know how God's sovereignty and my will intersects. I don't. God has not seen fit in the scripture to nail that down tight and hard in every detail. But I do know there are little clues here. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. There's a little verse there, and I don't know if you saw it as we went by, but you might think, why was that there? Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. What does that mean? 
Somebody tell me why that was significant in this story. Lots of people. When at the Passover, all of the serious uh, Jews who are walking with the Lord, if you will, would come back to Jerusalem for the time of, of sacrifice. And so there would have been, I don't know, you know, many, many times more people in Jerusalem than normally were there. And so there's just people around. And so when they hear, hey, this, this guy who might be a prophet is out teaching or doing something, there was lots of people available, if you will, to go out and, and be there uh, and to make a crowd of at least 5,000 people. There was 5,000 men. They counted the men. We would assume there were women and children there also. So this huge crowd of people, it was possible because it was the Passover. Now, Jesus also orchestrated the, the aspect of it where they followed him out to a hillside to teach, and he taught all day long. It just seems that way for you. <laughs> he went on until it was, it was hungry time, and there was no fast food. And, and, and even if there, there were places they could go into town and get food, but they can't get in their car and drive there. They walked out into the boondocks, and, and so he knew that that whole circumstance was going to end up the way that it did. He knew that in terms of feeding this crowd, that it would be a humanly impossible situation. A humanly impossible situation. That's why in, in Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew 14, 16, Jesus said, after he asked the question to Philip, then he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now put yourself in Philip's place. You, you know, there's a crowd of people, and you don't know yet how many people they are because you haven't counted, but you can see the sea of people. And Jesus said, you feed them. And you're thinking, it's not possible. I can't do it. It's beyond me. Jesus knew also that there would be a storm on the lake. For all we know, he was up on the hill going, okay, now, Father. Right? He knew what was going to happen. God led his disciples into a humanly impossible but spiritually possible situation on purpose. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.13 is so precious. There has no temptation or test overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But with the test will make the way of escape. Now, if you don't mind me saying, Jerry Ward just heard this week he's got cancer again. Does that seem humanly possible to bear that? No. No, it doesn't. Did God know that was going to happen? <laughs> and many of you have challenges of various kinds. Jr., where are you? 
Would you, would you mind if I, I won't say the details, but I'll just give the, of your situation. J.R. needed a better job. And God led him to a good job. And when he went back to his boss and told him he was going to quit, his boss said, no way, I'm going to pay you more and I'm going to take care of you. Did that look humanly impossible on the, on the entry level when you're saying, hey, I can't live this way? Yeah. God is going to lead us into situations that to us look impossible. Okay? Now, as we grow in Christ, things that were small at one time don't, or were big at one time start to seem small, but then God leads us into more challenging things. We need to get it fixed in our mind. God is going to allow, allow us or lead us into humanly impossible situations, but that's when he starts to do the impossible that's why number three is so important here. I must believe that God does miracles to help me grow, not to make me comfortable. One of the, if there is a, an error and a temptation in the American evangelical church, it is just this. We want to be all about comfort. And, and frankly, when when, when homosexual marriage becomes not only legal but starts to be enforced as it is starting to be, we're thinking, hey, this is going to put the squeeze on us. It's not going to be so comfortable to be a Christian. Yeah. And we look up to heaven, and, 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 and if we're honest, what we're praying is, God, would you please make my life more comfortable? And God, God looks down and says, no. The error of the people that are pursuing miracles all of the time is they're really all about comfort. Jesus didn't do any miracles while he was on earth primarily to make people feel comfortable. He didn't feed people so they wouldn't be hungry. He fed people so they would turn around and go, whoa, you just multiplied five loaves and two fishes into food for thousands. He wanted them to see him. God will do miracles. Absolutely, I believe that. I've seen that. But he does it for our good when it will most help us to grow. Just because we don't like a particular circumstance does not mean it's evil. When these disciples were out on the lake and the, and the storm was going, boy, that'd be awful hard not to say this is bad and not to, not to really trust in God. But God wants us to trust no matter how big the storm is. The greatest miracle is for a believer to manifest the grace and peace and patience and love of Christ in the midst of difficulty. Anybody can complain. Anybody can get angry at God. That doesn't take much effort. But when we continue to faithfully trust in God in the midst of difficulty, that's when these words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4-7 come to bear. 
we have this treasure, the treasure of Christianity, of knowing Christ, in a clay pot, an earthen vessel, so that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of the Jesus may also be manifest in our body. He uses this illustration of a clay pot. You know, uh, you have clay pots, you put uh, flowers in them, and if you drop them, it doesn't take more than a few inches for them to just break and fall apart. They aren't, they aren't known for their strength, uh, they're known, you know, especially in the time of Christ, for cheapness, and, and it's just a, a container. And did you catch what Paul said? He said, we are pressed on every side. If it were possible for you to take a clay pot and to have four hands and press it like that, you know what's going to happen if you're strong enough. It's going to break. The Apostle Paul said, the miracle is this, we're pressed on every side, and yet, uh, how did he say it? We're not crushed. We're pressed, but we're not crushed. That's what we need to understand. God does want to do miracles. First and foremost, he wants to do the miracle of, of perseverance in us under the difficulty. And when he delivers us, the whole point is so that we will look to heaven and say, isn't God good? Isn't God powerful? I am weak, but he is strong. The fourth thing that God wants us to understand from these stories is this. I must believe that God wants my tests to cause me to see his resources. Look at verse 5. Philip, where can we get bread that these may eat? And then Philip answered 200 denarii. The denarii, you know, the, the penny or the the equivalent of a day's wages and no they didn't get paid a penny like we think of a penny but that's what the coin was called that was equal to a day's wage so he's saying 200 days wages two-thirds of a year's salary would not buy enough bread it's humanly impossible verse 8 one of his disciples Andrew Simon Peter's brother said There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Now think for a minute. When they saw the impossible situation, where were they looking for the solution? Right in front of them. They were looking just like this. Well, 200 days' wages wouldn't be enough, and and these five loaves and two fishes, they won't be enough. And Jesus was wanting, it was like he was, or, or more so, where can we get food? I wonder where we could get food. And they're going, I don't know. Looks impossible to me. In Matthew's account, we read this. His disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away so that they can go into the villages and buy food. Another low-down solution. Could we, could we take a big offering and buy food? You know, here's just a little dab of food. That won't work. 
sent them away. It's all, it's all horizontally focused solutions. In verse 5, when Jesus said, where shall we buy food? Philip should have remembered some things. Okay? I, I, I've done the same thing to you today. I've said, hey, what about this and what about that? I'm trying to get you to remember. Jesus was trying to get Philip to remember what should what are some things that Philip should have remembered that would help him answer would have helped him to answer this question the right way? Tell me the first thing he should have remembered who Jesus was and what was the first thing that Jesus did that should have told Philip this was possible? The wedding, turning the water into wine. Philip should have went, well, I guess if he could turn water into wine, I suppose he could turn dirt into bread. Never crossed his mind. What else should he have remembered? Maybe the lame man at the pool of Bethesda who was healed. Maybe the man's son who was healed when Jesus was in another town. And he just said, your son's healed. Maybe he should have remembered what the scripture says that when Jesus went into a town, they brought to him all of the sick and disease and he healed them all. You think after all of that, Philip would have went, well, Jesus, I, I suppose you could do something about this food situation. But it never crossed his mind. Now, how do we get to a point where we start to think about God's resources? I, I think it's by a, a disciplined effort to remember and to perhaps repeat the scripture, to memorize the scripture, and, to, and to, to develop a habit of response. The next time I come into a difficult situation, I'm going to go, wait a minute, God has all the resources I need. And I'm just going to tell myself that. Now I've got to pray about it, maybe search the scriptures and find what those specific resources are. But God has all of the resources. Uh, one commentator wrote this uh, in his comment on this scripture. Do we, like Philip and Andrew, look at our resources? Do we rack our minds to find some solution? Or do our first thoughts turn to the Lord Jesus, who has so often helped us in the past? Oh, dear reader, have we learned to spread each difficulty as it comes along before God? Have we formed the habit of instinctively turning to him? What is your feebleness in comparison with his ocean fullness? Then daily look to him in simple faith, resting on his sure promise, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And look at verse 13, will you? When we think about God's resources, did God have enough resources to just barely take the edge off of everyone's hunger? No, it says they ate, verse 12, so when they were filled, they never ran out of food. And in fact, there were 12 baskets left. And did you notice there were 12 baskets of bread left? God didn't save any of the fish. 
You know, because they won't save, will they? Wow, is God that capable? Is he that specific? Is he that aware? Yes, God wants me to learn that he has what I need. He has the resources. Number five, I must believe that God's solutions to my tests will include my effort. Nowhere in the New Testament does God teach a spiritual life without effort. I don't sit on my hands and say, okay, God, fix my problem. Paul summarizes the reality of of God's part and our part together in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, when he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. When we come to Christ in faith for salvation, we don't do anything because we have nothing to contribute. We're sinners. We can't possibly assist in our salvation. And so God saves us directly as a matter of, in response to our faith, he saves us. But once we have come to Christ, the, the, the nature of Christ is put within. We have the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit to work and to do what God has told us in his word. And so we give our effort and God empowers that effort according to his word and we grow in him. And so when the trial comes, we will feel like there is a moment when this is impossible. And we want to cry out for someone to fix this. And yet part of that starting point is for us to say, wait a minute. God wants me to remember his resources, and he wants me to go to him in prayer. He wants me to go to the word for my comfort, and maybe there are specific things he has said that I need to be practicing, acts of righteousness while I'm working in this difficulty, and God in that process will deliver me in his time and in his way, and that process and God's deliverance will will bring me to a greater place of godliness. The disciples had to bring the lunch to Christ. The disciples had to carry the food to the crowd. The disciples had to pick up the leftovers. The disciples had to row the boat. God expects us to supply all that we can while focusing on his unlimited resources. Then he does the rest. And that same commentator I read a minute ago, Arthur Pink, said, Between the unsearchable riches of Christ and the hungry multitudes, there is room for consecrated service in ministry. I have to be actively growing in Christ through my test. Number six, I must believe that God's desire for me in tests is faith. Consistent faith. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. Then those men, that's not talking about the disciples, by the way. This is the the men in the crowd. Then those men, when they had seen the loaves and the fishes miracle, they said, truly, this is the prophet who came into the world. But as Jesus continued to teach, look what the crowd said in chapter 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples, not the twelve, but this crowd, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. See, they were willing to 
to believe in Christ to a certain extent. When they said this is the prophet that was to come into the world, they were referring to words that Moses had spoken thousands of years before. And Moses predicted, or or God predicted, that there would be another prophet like Moses whom God would raise up. Well, they were happy to have a Moses who brought food. They knew about that from the Old Testament. But they were not happy to have a Savior who they would commit their life to and believe on wholly. What God wants from us is full and complete faith. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 and Mark's account of of, uh, this miracle in particular, the the one that follows the the time on the water. Mark 6, and we're going to start in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he sent the multitude away, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. When the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them. He saw the disciples straining at rowing. We could stop and spend some time there and just say, he sees, he saw them straining at the rowing. He knows you're straining at the rowing. He does. And don't think him uncaring for letting you strain. Because he's about to do something. He saw them straining at the rowing, verse 48. For the wind was against them. <laughs> does God know when the wind is against you? Yes, he does. The wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. He's just getting from one side of the sea to the other. They're getting from one side to the other. Hey, what's the problem? And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they screamed like little girls. That's what it says. For they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Why? Look at verse 52. This is the moral to the story. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Jesus wanted, now he wasn't surprised, okay, but he expected that the loaves and the fishes would teach them something about his power. Do you know there's no record here of them praying to him? Is it possible that he, the reason he was walking by was he thought, well, I guess you guys don't need my help. He says, you have not because you ask not. They had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. The goal of this test, the loaves and the fishes and the time and the water, 
and the subsequent miracle of the calming of the sea was for the disciples to believe in Jesus more fully. After the feeding of the multitude, they should not have feared for their life in the boat, nor been surprised at Jesus walking on the water. I mean, you've seen him turn the water into wine. You've seen him heal people. You've seen him heal whole towns. You just saw him feed thousands of people from five loaves and two fishes. And when he walks on the water, you're going, what in the world? Now, I'm... I don't have any desire to be overly hard on them because, you know, the Holy Spirit had not come yet. They didn't have their eyes fully opened yet. And, and, and that factors into this story. I get that. But they should have started to learn. And they should have been like Abraham. See, Abraham was in the same boat as them. He was not... He did not have the Holy Spirit in him like we do. He did not have the whole Bible like we do. He, he and them were in the same boat. Uh, no pun intended there, sorry. God said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he waited for a long time and finally had that son of promise. And then God said what? Go sacrifice him. Really, God? He didn't say that because by then he had learned This is God's will, and he's going to work through it somehow. And we see that testimony in Genesis 22, 7 through 8. Abraham took Isaac and the fire and the wood, and they walk up, and they build the altar, and they get everything laid out. And um, in the process of this, Isaac said, My father, and Abraham said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, the the divine commentary in the book of Hebrews says that Abraham knew that even if, if he put the knife into his son, if the angel hadn't stayed his hand, he knew that God could raise him up. The disciples had not grown to that point yet. So when they're out in the water despairing for their life and Jesus comes along, they're shocked and amazed and he calms the sea and they go, what in the world? I can't figure it out. And it was just part of the process for them to grow up. God wants us to have such confidence in Christ that when the hard times come, sure we struggle, sure we cry, sure we strain at the the oars, but we don't don't come to that point of saying, what in the world are we going to do? Because we know right away, I know what we need to do. We need to talk to the Lord. We need to follow the Lord's leading. We need to walk with him through this. Listen to how these same men the disciples, some of them, a group of them, responded later in the book of Acts when they got into a life-threatening situation. They were, uh, they were, on the, they were uh, preaching God's word. They got in trouble with the authorities, and the authorities conferred amongst themselves, and here was the, off, the upshoot of it. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of the Lord of Jesus, and they let them go. 
So the disciples departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They said, don't preach. And they said, see you later. They didn't lie and say, we won't. But they just said, see you later. And they went right over to the temple and got with it. Why? Because God's in control. Oh, we got beaten. Increase my faith, Lord, to say it's God's will. It's okay. God's at work. God is good even when I'm getting beaten. God's desire from us is faith, then more faith, then more faith, until we are rock solid in the face of any difficulty. Rock solid in the face of any difficulty. When our kids were in that phase of, of life where they were losing baby teeth, we uh, enjoyed the tradition of the tooth fairy. One of our few uh, concessions to uh, some of that foolishness. We didn't have some of the others, but uh, we had the tooth fairy. And in our house, uh, because that's the way it was in my house, you had to put your tooth in a glass of water on a table near your bed. And in the morning, the tooth fairy would leave you some coins. A pretty good deal. Well, after we had done this for a number of times, and I'm sure our kids were at the point of understanding who the tooth fairy was, one time the tooth fairy didn't have any coins. And so the tooth fairy took a dollar bill and shoved it in that glass of water. (laughs) (laughs) And in the morning, that child said, Tell the tooth fairy not to give me any more wet dollars. (laughs) The world's definition of peace is a myth. The world's definition of peace is everything goes good, everything's easy, everything's sweet. When Jesus said he was going to give us peace, he didn't say, I'm going to take away all the bumps out of the road of your life. He said, I'm going to give you peace not like the world gives, which means it's going to be peace in the middle of difficulty. Our challenge is to stop looking up to heaven and saying, don't give me any more of that kind of stuff. Because real peace comes through our relationship with God even in the midst of difficulty because we understand that God is using them for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that there have been times when we have looked up to heaven and said, we don't want this. Take it back. But we also confess that we are so blessed when we see your hand and we see the growth that you bring through our difficulties. So, Father, help us to grow just like you helped those disciples to grow. You didn't give up on them and you're not going to give up on us. Help us to commit ourselves to you in in full and complete and strong faith. Help us to walk through whatever difficulty you bring our way knowing that you are there and you are going to grow us up through it. I pray in Christ's name, amen.